Okay, welcome to Kibbe on Liberty, another COVID uh, special edition. We're still using Skype. And today, I wanted to get a perspective on the ground. We're hearing so much from Washington, D.C. The experts have all these strong opinions. But I thought we would speak to not, uh, wash, Knox County Mayor Glenn Jacobs. Hey, Mr. Mayor. Hi. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, um, I saw I've been I've been following you on Twitter and and there's a bunch of stuff I want to get into, uh, but I wanted to give people a perspective of what's going on in Knox County, Tennessee. Um, I don't necessarily trust Washington to tell me how you guys should live your lives. What's going on there? Well, when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, thus far we've been extremely fortunate. Uh, we have um, Tennessee is in the top 10 number states with the amount of testing that's being done here. Um, it's kind of sad to see all the political forces at work. And uh, I know that other people are saying in Tennessee, you're not doing any testing. The, the governor of Kentucky actually said that Tennessee was a pretty much a not doing enough, doing nothing, and put a travel advisory for Kentuckians going to Tennessee. Turns out we're doing six times as much testing as they are in Kentucky. Um, but in Knox County specifically, uh, we've been very fortunate. We have a community of not quite 500,000 people. Uh, so far, we have 110 confirmed cases of COVID-19. Um, we've had 16 hospitalizations. Unfortunately and tragically, we have had one fatality. But we've also had 70 recoveries, which means that people that, it, that are either recovered past the 14-day the or have been in the hospital and are now uh, on, on the road to recovery. Um, so when you look at our numbers, uh, you know, thankfully, we're doing really well. Um, like many other states, the governor put out an executive order um, limiting restaurants to delivery only, closing bars, uh, also closing um, businesses that, that are close proximity and high touch, such as hair salons, gyms, nail salons, um, massage parlors, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and just like everyone else now, we're seeing the impact of what all this is doing to our economy. Uh, to be fair, I think that the pandemic itself was going to be a blow to the economy. And then with all these mandated closures, it's, it's just really made that that much worse. Uh, but over the past two weeks, I'm sure the people have seen the national numbers. We have 9.9 .9 million people who filed for new unemployment claims. In Tennessee, is 140,000 people, um, 140,000 of my fellow Tennesseans and fellow neighbors over the past two weeks alone. Uh, so overall, um, thus far, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm certainly not downplaying the impact of this disease, uh, but we've seen tremendous economic damage done. Uh, and we, we have uh, suffered some effects from the disease, uh, but um, not nearly as much as other places you might hear about. There does seem to be a bit of a bidding war amongst governors as to, as to how sort of strident they get in the lockdown of the economies. And it, it strikes me that that when I when I go through the list, the, the governor of Tennessee released a list of 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 things that that are essential, and it's 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 fairly broad. Like it, yeah. it and I I wonder how law enforcement that's trying to enforce these kinds of things could possibly make reasonable decisions about about who to uh, go after and who and what to let slide. Um, how would anyone make a decision like that? Well, I think uh, first of all, let me say this. 
Bill Lee, the governor of Tennessee, he's a good man. He's a good person. Uh, and I know that he struggled a lot uh, with that decision. He's not one of those uh, people that's just going to immediately just go, we need to close all this stuff down. I mean, you know, he really struggled with it. Um, and when you look, it, it's, it's really focused on... Um, the again, those high touch businesses. What he what he says, you know, businesses by their nature just have very high rate of possibly transmitting this disease. Which you know, are things like your personal appearance businesses, your nail salons, and that sort of thing. Um, and then when you look at, at uh, other things, yeah, the the list, I mean, is you know, pretty broad and pretty wide open. And I I, I think that uh, what law enforcement is really trying to do um, is more so just use communication and education and really more focus on the things like the uh, the restaurants, the bars, um, the hair salons, nail salons, more so than, than other sorts of retail. Um, and, and it is hard because, you know, I've had a number of small businesses reach out to me um, and they're losing money staying in business. It would be cheaper for them just to either just shut down right now or at least pause their um, their operations, but they're trying to pay their employees and they're trying to keep their people employed. And I, I wish more folks would keep that in mind. You know, we hear this thing, it's profits over people. It's not profits over people. They're trying to pay their people. And also for most businesses, if there ain't any profits, they ain't going to have any people. And that's just how the market works. Uh, so it, it's an extremely difficult time for a lot of businesses. And my, you know, I, I'm, I just applaud those that are out there and taking care of their people. Yeah. And I, you know, my, my instinct, and I wonder if you see this, but my instinct tells me that, that free people are generally responsible and you have employers trying to take care of their employees and you have neighbors trying to be responsible. You have people that are conscious of, of vulnerable populations and we were doing all of these things. And I wonder I wonder what the difference is actually between a governor or the, 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 the surgeon general or, or whoever sort of mandating from the top down, you must do this, you must do that, versus what we were already doing long before governors told us to do it. It's interesting. Uh, in the Imperial College of London model, uh, which was the model that was disseminated, and it, it was the one that said 2.2 million people uh, are, I guess, in the U.S. are going to die, 500,000 in the U.K., and that's when Boris Johnson completely went the other way from where he was going, and also Trump, you know, Trump really started uh, going a different way as well. And if you actually read what they say, and of course, we, we see the statistics and all that stuff, and the media throws that out there and says, but, and at first I was really angry because I was like, you know, these guys, it's not accurate, any of that. But then you read what Neil Ferguson, who is the guy that the main person behind the model, he talks about things like organic social distancing and cultural variations. And people will take it upon themselves to protect themselves and to protect others. Therefore, his model is just saying, this is what happens if no one does anything at all. You know, and uh, I, was, I was actually really impressed by the fact that that he realized, hey, we really can't predict because people are going to start taking measures to protect themselves. They will put on masks. They will make sure that they don't visit their elderly relatives. Like I haven't, I haven't seen my uh, my in-laws in um, probably six weeks or maybe two months now. They're both 
close to 90 years old. Uh, they're both were close or they're friends of, of mine. Um, but I also realized that, you know, I may not feel sick, but you know, I still am out doing stuff and I don't want to get them, give them this thing because just cause I'm feeling okay. doesn't mean that I can't bring harm to them. Um, and it is unfortunate. You do see like you had that thing, uh, whatever, I think in Kentucky, uh, the governor said that, you know, some teenagers got together and had a coronavirus party, which is stupid. Okay. Um, and you do see things like that, but then you also see folks that, that do the right thing naturally. And unfortunately, I think what happens is politicians, um, they don't, they don't trust us to do the right thing, uh, you know, with the, the whole nanny state thing. And then also sometimes they just want to show, look, this is really serious. So we're going to write a law about it. And that really doesn't accomplish anything more than all the stuff that's coming out on TV and all the things that the media are saying. Uh, and in the end, you know, this is the argument that folks like you and I always make. Um, we consider the right to vote sacrosanct. Okay. That's something that once people reach a certain age and have a certain level of responsibility in their life, they can do that. So we're saying that the average person can decide who has their finger literally on a button that can obliterate the world. But we're not going to trust you to social distance. That, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah. And it, to take it even one step further, there's there's all sorts of uh, perverse, um, unintended consequences that happen when we impose these top-down mandates. But but I'm reminded of uh, I, I can't not quote Frederick Hayek when I'm <laughs> when I'm talking to the mayor of Knox County. But um, you know he 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 argues that that a lot of these these rules that hold civil society together um, precede any government mandate or dictate and these are just things that people do because because they naturally work and and part of the process here going back to neil ferguson and the the shocking number of potentially 2.2 million people dying um he does point out in his paper that this is a completely implausible scenario because it assumes that none of us do anything to mitigate the damage um and yet the press grabbed onto that number because it was the most sensational without reading the report and all the caveats and all of this. Um, but, you know, the unintended consequence of, of, of sort of stopping people at state borders and, and telling people that they can't travel is that people that were doing the right thing start thinking, well, maybe, maybe I do need to go to the store and stock up because I don't know what the government's going to do. Right. Well, there's all sorts of unintended consequences. Uh, the, uh, FEE.org, the Foundation for Economic Freedom, had a great article online. I have it pulled up. It's called An Alternative to the Lockdown Strategy in the Fight Against Coronavirus. And in this, they talk about, uh, and I've, I've been looking for something like this, but a study was done in 1979 uh, with, with um, figures on the impact of unemployment. And if you extrapolate out uh, to today's population, um, every 10% increase in the number of unemployed on the average causes, uh, it causes a 1.2% increase in total mortality, which today would mean uh, 36,000 people a year additionally are, will die because of every 10% increase in unemployment. Well, if you see what economists are saying about unemployment, uh, I don't think that 30% unemployment is out of the realm of possibility by any stretch of the imagination. So we're talking about tens of thousands of additional people 
uh, who could lose their lives in whatever way because of the economic impact of what's happening. Again, you know, the pandemic itself was going to cause some problems, I think, within the economy because people would not patronize restaurants and all those things uh, like they have in the past. Um, but nevertheless, now it's gone so far. And we're seeing factories being shut down. We're seeing that here. Two of our largest um, employers and manufacturers in our region paused production last week. Uh, so I think what's going to end up happening is that the long-term indirect economic and political impact that all this is having um, is going to end up causing more damage than the direct number of deaths related to COVID-19. That's uh, I've been looking for that number as well, and and I, I should uh, caution by saying that all of these projections, economic projections, right. ep epidemiological pro projections, make really big assumptions about about things that we don't know, and you you should always take all of these numbers with a grain of salt. But but there absolutely is a trade-off between what. Uh, Things like Neil Ferguson, what they want to do, a full shutdown of the economy until the virus is eradicated. And I, and I feel like uh, President Trump's uh, main uh, medical advisor, uh, Fauci, has said the same thing. Well, there's, there's only so long you can lock right. down the economy before you, you create catastrophic um, results as well. So it's not a question of lives versus the economy or lives versus money. It's a question of how do we keep most people, the, the most people, the safest that they can be? And part of that calculus has to be economics. Absolutely. And there's a, there is a political component here as well. Uh, when we look at all the things that are going on and, and the lockdowns, and I'm still trying, I'm still scratching my head going, how is any of that constitutional? Um, and it, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I know here locally, uh, under the Tennessee Code Annotated, uh, the public health officer has very broad powers in a health emergency. Um, but, you know, you look at the Tennessee, the state of Tennessee Constitution, and it is very specific, uh, and it actually offers much stronger protections for individual rights than even the U.S. Constitution does. Um, and I don't know how you, how do you, how you drive those two. Um, but in the end, I think what's going to end up happening here is we have we have a health issue that is going to end up causing an economic crisis that is going to cause a political crisis as well. And um, I, I do very much worry about uh, the impact that it will have on our system of government. Yeah. Well, well let's let's talk about that a little more because uh, one of uh, one of the things that gave you concern with the government statement was the apparent use of of drivers' data and cell phone data to track the, the behavior of, of citizens in Tennessee. And there was a slight uptick of, of people leaving their homes again. And that apparently was his motivation for, for legally locking down the economy. There's some pretty big civil right, civil uh, liberties questions there. Well, there is. Evidently, Google has made uh, that data available to governments. Um, and of course, it's, it's anonymous. But we all know how the anonymous data actually works. Uh, you know, it, it may be aggregated and all that, um, but in the end, uh, we realize uh, through revelations that have come from us, uh, from uh, folks that have worked at the NSA, uh, that that those things are are tracked. And even if they are not, 
you know, real time, this is what you're doing. They are put into a database that can that can at some point be pulled out. Um, so yeah, that that is very concerning. Uh, the fact that uh, I think it realize even people here in Tennessee um, who aren't necessarily um, huge civil libertarians uh, still realize, wait a second, he just said that they're <laughs> monitoring our travel patterns, uh, which is extremely big brotherish, and I, I think gave a lot of people pause. Uh, and and of course, also, even if you're looking at it as the utility of that data, I just like to drive around, you know, and. I don't necessarily go to someone's house or even go to the store. I just like to drive. It's Zen for me. Um, my wife and I have a farm out in the country. It's about it's about 45 minutes from where we live in Knox County. About every weekend, I drive to the farm and just check up on everything. Well, that's 100 miles a weekend that I'm driving. I don't see anybody either here or there other than people I pass in the cars, but it all goes into the aggregate and says, this is what you know, this is what the people of Tennessee and the how much they're traveling. Um, so that 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 is uh, concerning, and I, I know it gave people other than myself a pause to think that, gosh, uh, you know, we we know they're doing it. I mean, and I, I know all that stuff, but I, you know, in order to function in the world as we have it, we all have a cell phone, we all do those things, and I don't necessarily want to have it in my face. So maybe this is a good reminder even for people like me that that it is right there. Um, but when we talk about all the different things that that are happening. Uh, and the enforcement for these lockdowns, you know, people should realize that um, I, I think it's okay and very appropriate for government officials to encourage people to do things and say, this is what we should be doing and, and all those sort of things. But when we start mandating that, that opens the door for coercion and uh, in the end for physical violence to be used against people who are just in some cases you know, minding their own business. Uh, and that should scare all of us. I'm, I don't know if you saw this, but there's this this really, um, not horrific, but just, just disturbing clip of, of two Coast Guard cutters chasing down a kid in California who's out on the ocean in Malibu paddleboarding. Right. Um, isn't, isn't we're near another soul. He's probably getting some emotional and physical relief and exercise by doing that. And it just, it's, they're doing the same thing here. I, I live in, unfortunately, I live in the District of Columbia. Don't Columbia. you guys have a $5,000 fine or something like that? Yeah. 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 They, there's, there's fines and, and people that are being completely safe and socially distant. They're out jogging. They're out walking. These are things that people need to do to maintain their, their health and their sanity. Matt, and, Matt, I will say we will not see anything like that in Tennessee. I can pretty much guarantee you that. So you, you need to come on down. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, hearing about your state constitution, I'm wondering if you will accept applicants, uh, refugees <laughs> from from the District of Columbia. Well, we, we well, I, I don't know, uh, but we, <laughs> we might, and we, we might see an influx of people. Uh, and, and we've actually seen that, uh, I believe. My, my wife is a realtor, and it's funny because she'll have people call from out of state and uh, I don't know if it's the best thing for her for her uh, sales and, and her business, but she will she will ask them if they are liberal or conservative, you know. And and uh, inevitably, what they'll say is um, there's lunacy going on here, and we want to get out and we want to come to Tennessee, which is much more uh, conservative state, much you know, a state where we actually take people's freedoms and rights, um, we we take those seriously. 
Well, it's it's probably against my self-interest, but you probably don't want to accept anyone from Washington D.C. We're <laughs> we're we're we're, we're not going to take anyone anyone that's there part of the year at Congress. I'll tell you that. So yeah. Hey, I wanted to ask you about hospitals because I this is a issue that's very important to me personally, and and I'm I'm looking at um, certain governors. I don't think your governor did this, and uh, uh, the attorney general, a number of uh, health officials in Washington D.C said, um, not, not in a way that was a mandate, but when the attorney general says something to hospitals, they have to listen. Right. Um, they said that, that you should clear the decks uh, to all the hospitals, cancel all of the elective surgeries so that, that hospitals could be better prepared for an onslaught of, of COVID patients. And there was this uh, specific case where New York and Manhattan, the hospitals, many of the hospitals at least, are, are getting crushed with, right. with COVID patients. But in Syracuse, across the state, um, because of this de facto mandate that there shouldn't be elective surgeries, all these beds are sitting empty. And as a result, you have a complete drain of resources that would be used by hospitals to keep those services ready for when the onslaught happens, if it does happen. What's going on in Tennessee with that? Well, actually, Governor Lee did issue an executive order uh, which prohibited hospitals from uh, and medical providers from doing elective surgeries. Um, and they also did something similar, I think, with dentists. Um, and yeah, the, the impact has been that uh, the non-emergency hospitals, like the orthopedic clinics, uh, as well as the rural hospitals have really suffered because that was, uh, that was one of their main revenue sources. Um, so there's there's a clinic in town here. It's one. It's a big orthopedic clinic, and they furloughed all of their nurses, all of their physicians' assistants. The doctors are taking uh, significantly reduced salaries, and they're just trying to make it through. So uh, that has yes, that that has happened here. Uh, I think it's something that people need to keep in mind is when we're talking about you know the models and all that uh, sort of stuff and and the transmission of COVID nineteen. Um, there's a significant difference between New York City, which has a population density of over 25,000 people per square mile, and say Knox County, which is still an urban county here in Tennessee, but we have population density of a little over 900 people, 126th of what New York City has. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm thankful that President Trump has not just said, this is what we're going to do nationwide because it really does vary quite a bit depending on where you live. Uh, as you say, in Syracuse, I can imagine they're probably much less hard hit than they're going to be in New York City. Um, so that's one of those things where I think local decisions, uh, even if it is something like that that's a mandate, I think local decisions are much better made than decisions that come from the top down. It seems like there's there's a lot of very difficult uh, choices that that doctors and patients are going to have to make anyway, because uh, another one of perhaps unintended consequences, I believe it was the governor of Georgia, um, uh, uh, mandated that uh, uh, cancer patients, that their treatments would be deemed elective. Mm -hmm. And again, this seems like a, a sweeping overstatement right. that ignores the fact that every single patient and every single doctor and every single facility is dealing with a unique situation every time they have to make a decision. And cancer patients, of course, are, are very exposed. Their their immune systems are weakened and, and there is that trade-off. But, but I'm asking um, how anyone 
um, in, in a state capital could possibly know better than doctors and patients how to make that decision. Right. Um, the, the thing is that it, the market does work and when it's allowed to. And, you know, people think of the free market as um, it, all these results and sometimes we don't like them, but the market's actually a process. And it's a process that solves problems. So when a problem arises, entrepreneurs, doctors, hospital administrators, whoever, actually, when they see that they can make a profit by addressing the problem, that's what they do, and resources start flowing there. Um, so the market does work. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time. But as, as Hayek would tell you, the difference is that the people within the market actually have the information necessary and can make those decisions. The politicians, because they're outside the market, don't. And the market is very dynamic, it's always changing. So the entrepreneurs, the people within the system, they have to be able to address that and they have to do it very quickly. Whereas the politicians you know, often do just, um, in many cases, just what political pressure forces them to do. Uh, they're not really reacting to the, the stimulus inside the stimulus inside the market uh, per se and they also can't make those decisions as quickly as possible and they also don't consider the unintended consequences um, doesn't mean they're bad people because a lot of them are really really good people and they are in a tough place and uh, what they're thinking is i don't want to get blamed for these deaths and they're not looking at you know the fact that deaths are going to come in other ways maybe at another time but they're not going to get, you know, they, they, they won't get blamed for those because they won't, won't be directly linked to that decision. Uh, so it is difficult, and sometimes the most difficult thing to do is to let the market work as it should. Yeah, and you, you, you actually tweeted out uh, another one of my favorite economists, Frederick Bastiat. <laughs> I, think, I think that was actually today, uh, talking about unintended consequences and, and what he called the seen and the unseen. And when, when politicians act, they act boldly and they 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 make these proclamations. They are responding to an incentive not to be viewed as as passive or or flat-footed when it comes to these things. But but no nobody ever sees the sort of the the unseen consequences, the 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 trade-off, the 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 people that will die because they didn't have access to chemotherapy. Right, right. And and you're exactly right. Uh, the uh, I think it was. Um, uh, Henry Hazlitt that wrote that the difference between a good economist and a not so good economist is a good economist considers not only the immediate intended beneficial results of a policy, but also the long-term unintended destructive consequences of the policy. In some cases, that's very hard to do uh, as well. And as you said earlier, you know, even when I'm throwing out figures and saying this is what we see with whatever, well, those are estimations and may not actually be accurate. Uh, a lot of it's based on historical data, and people have free will and we act. And it's very hard to predict exactly what people are going to do. Um, but that's something that it's not always taken into account, you know. And especially in this situation, because it's like, well, if you're not addressing this, you don't care about key people and you don't care if people die. I do care about this, and I do care about people. We also have to keep in mind what we're doing over here, though, and what's going to happen over here. I don't have all of those answers, and, and no one does. 
but we have to try to balance those things as much as we possibly can and not just say this is the only thing that matters because yes this is really important this is too and we have to look at both of those things and the totality of all of it and that can be difficult the the um the other thing you were telling me before we got rolling here, and, and I think this is this is a big point, and it gets back to everything we're saying, that you're seeing local people in your community, entrepreneurs, restaurant owners, whoever it is, stepping up and solving problems that that don't seem to be solvable from the top down. You know, we were talking about uh, uh, face masks, for instance. Uh, a couple of things that I've seen, uh, first of all, the fact that the community does step up. If they're asked, people do step up. Uh, I have uh, two, two friends uh, that have donated thousands of N95 face masks uh, to local providers. Um, one, he's from Malaysia, and it's a cultural thing there to, you know, to, to the face mask. And he can get them cheaper here, so he gets them by bulk and sends them out. Well, he's given thousands away, thousands, and donated them to hospitals throughout the region. And then another uh, friend of mine is actually from India, uh, just ordered a thousand N95 masks that he's going to donate. They don't have to do that. They're doing that because they're they're good citizens and they're good stewards of our community. And then you also look at all the businesses and what, what they're doing. Uh, the last day that I went to my gym before it was closed, um, it's actually a 24-hour gym that you have a key fob and can get it into any time. They were limiting their hours to staff time. When you came in, you were told to disinfect your hands. Every other machine was uh, taken offline so that you had the distance between the machines. Uh, they were sanitizing everything, you know, making sure that there was extra san hand sanitizers and, and uh, um, the wipes all throughout the gym. Uh, you, you were now mandated to clean off equipment when you were done. They were monitoring that. Uh, so they were trying to do the very best they could to ensure that they had as uh, hygienic an environment as possible. And seeing that also with retailers. Uh, you know, some of the hardware stores are now, they have uh, plexiglass partitions between you and the cashier. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the credit card machines, they're, they're germ boxes. I think we should all realize that. So um, they're spraying down between every transaction, they're spraying off the credit card machine with sanitizer. There's uh, on the floor, there's markers of how six feet apart, please stay behind here. You know, they're letting a limited number of people into the store at a time. Um, so they really are trying uh, to protect the health of their employees and the consumer. You know, and it always, it always kind of boggles my mind when you hear about, well, these companies don't care about the consumer. Yeah, they do. Because if there's no consumers, there's nobody to buy their product. So they're deeply concerned with the health and well-being of the people that keep them in business, and it shows through in situations like this. The other thing that sort of drives me nuts, and I and I touched on this earlier, but this this idea that there are essential jobs and non-essential jobs, and and it's pretty easy to to point to a couple things that you would think are essential. Healthcare workers are essential, and and getting food on your table is essential, which means that that grocery stores and distribution and farmers, um, these, these are things that we desperately need, particularly as the economy starts to contract. But I think, I think people, going back to the unseen, people don't appreciate that all those other jobs that you don't even know about, right. and if you don't know about it, it's not essential, right? It, those are all of the, the support systems in an incredibly diversified 
uh, division of labor that holds this entire ecosystem together. So I'm I'm worried about um, the the unknown worker that is a heck of a lot more essential than we think he is right now, being told he can't work. Right. As you said, the economy flex ecosystem. And I think that some people think, well, gosh, uh, once we can just shut the economy off, there's a little switch, and we can turn it off, and then it's like a machine. We just hit the switch, and the economy roars to life. That, as you said, it's, it's an ecosystem, right? And it, it does. that's not how it works. And it's extremely complex. And it's like the, the, the butterfly flapping its wings. That little thing over here can have massive ripples throughout the economy. And um, again, I, I, I share your concern uh, when we're looking at our global economy, which is more complex now than ever. Um, the division of labor, again, which is more complex than ever. And that's why we have all the stuff that we have. And that's why we have the standard of living that we have. But when we look at those things and the complexity, uh, it doesn't take a whole lot to mess them up. And once those supply chains are stretched, if they break, um, there's going to be real problems. And um, that's something that I, that I think we should all keep in mind. Uh, one of the things that, that concern me when, when there's talk of these lockouts is, well, or lockdowns, it's like, well, you know, um, okay, a week or two, it's going to cause a lot of problems, uh, but, you know, the economy is resilient, but it's not a week or two, and we realize that now. And the longer this goes on, the more disruption you see in the economy. And I think at some point it almost becomes exponential. It's no longer linear. You know, it really starts to shoot up because once these things start piling up, it becomes very difficult. Um, so again, I think when policymakers are determining what to do, they need to keep in mind that the economy is resilient, uh, it, but it's also complex. And despite its resiliency, in that way, it actually makes it very fragile to certain disruptions. And if we have a mass disruption, that that's going to be extremely problematic. Yeah, and 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 I would I would add to that that we we actually need a a long-term strategy. That the whole idea of of flattening the curve to make sure that we don't get uh, more sick people than our hospitals can can sustain. Uh, lengthens the curve, which means that what would be a shorter event is going to be a longer event. And I've seen some models that if you go on beyond the four-month period, you're, you're going to get a second spike because you avoided the first spike. So the the, the question becomes, what's the what's the long-term strategy for for managing and fighting the virus while we actually keep people fed and safe and employed and and th these are these are things right now. I don't think the American people have been um, really told the truth about how long this thing might take, based on their own models. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, I feel that it, at at the start of all this, it was you know just we we we, we underreacted. Okay, uh, it was it's just the flu. It's no big deal. Well, it's 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 not the flu. It's much different than the flu. Um, but this idea that you can just essentially lock people away uh, for a few weeks, a couple months, and it's going to go away. Well, again, if you go back to Neil Ferguson and what his people saying, this just makes sense. As long as the thing is out there, and it's always going to be out there, once people start interacting again, you run the risk that it's going to start spreading again. So we have to figure out a way to deal with this issue, but to deal with it in a way that keeps people employed and keeps our economy intact. 
And the other issue is, again, we live in a global economy. And, and for people who think that's not important, well, the reason that we have the standard of living that we do is because of the International Division of Labor and the fact that you can get almost anything you want anywhere in the world at this point. And if you take that away, well, we will not enjoy the standard of living that we have. And, and there are consequences to that. But because we do live in a global economy, this is not the last time that something like this is going to happen. And how are we going to deal with the, the next one? Um, if you look at COVID-19 compared to something like SARS, uh, SARS was much more deadly. Okay? And uh, MERS was much more, much more deadly. And those things can be out there too. Um, so not only in this situation, but going forward, we're going to have to figure out a way that we can deal with this thing, but a realistic way that keeps people safe, keeps people employed, and keeps the economy going. And uh, frankly, I, I don't think that we've done that. No, not, not yet. But I, I do see uh, um, signs that that innovation is happening, and 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 one of the things that that is different today is technology and, and the fact that we can get groceries delivered to our door if, if we don't feel it's safe to go to the grocery store. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask Kane at least one question during this interview. I don't know if you want to put your mask on or what, but uh, <laughs> um, one of the innovators um, is the WWE. Sure. And they went ahead with WrestleMania and uh, they, they, they live streamed it, um, I guess, in an empty auditorium. Um, so that, that the fans could go on. You're stuck in your house and you're a WWE fan. Well, there's a there's a technology hack that actually um, made people's lives better. I uh, am really proud of what WWE ha has done. Uh, when you look at a guy like Vince McMahon, his true genius is that he's always been ahead of the curve when it comes to entertainment technology. Uh, if you go to www.payperview.com, it actually redirects to WWE.com because he didn't invent pay-per-view, but he certainly perfected it. And then did the same thing with digital content uh, via the website. And now with the WWE Network, it's award-winning and all the various uh, things that they've been able to do is the first platform that allowed both streaming and uh, on-demand capability. And that also uh, allowed WrestleMania to go on this year when so many other things have been canceled. It was a great show and uh, just again, um, while we see so many other forms of entertainment, especially live entertainment, uh, that aren't able to perform right now, WWE was able to do it because of the vision that a great American entrepreneur had. And uh, say what you will about Vince McMahon, but that does make people's lives better. What do you What do you think about this idea? Um, you know, you're you're a professional athlete, and and. Uh, basketball players and football players and, and wrestlers, you, you guys are in a lot better shape than the rest of us. You're very healthy. Um, what do you think about this idea of, of taking this model of, of still playing the game, um, perhaps um, on an empty field or an, an empty ring, whatever, whatever the sport might be, but giving people that are stuck at home um, access to some of the things that, that are very important to them do you think there's a model there using technology and and you're probably talking about testing and, and all sorts of, of extra precautions to do something like that, but it seems viable. I, I do. I agree with you. I can tell you as a performer that I'd be 
very difficult, especially in what I did in WWE, because our product is so interactive uh, and it would, it would be difficult. Uh, but WrestleMania, they pulled it off. Uh, there, there was a match. It was The Undertaker versus AJ Styles in a Boneyard match. And uh, it, it was awesome because they were able to add a lot of cinematic elements that they wouldn't have been able to do had it had the show been live. Uh, so it, it was really great. Uh, so WWE might have an advantage in that way. Uh, you know, but nevertheless, I, th I think there is. And certainly being able to see LeBron James uh, play, even if it's in front of an empty arena, in an empty arena, uh, is better than not being able to see him play at all. Uh, so I, I think there is a model. And if this goes on, you know, I think that other sports are going to start putting out some, some new programming just because, you know, just because they're going to have to. And I think the fans would have would really appreciate that. Um, technology does, as you said, innovation and technology, um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, here, uh, the University of Tennessee is, is 3D printing face masks for doctors and, and nurses, the, the clear plexiglass masks. Uh, we have entrepreneurs here that are in the advanced materials and advanced manufacturing sector of the economy, and they are working on uh, things to help. I don't, I'm sure you saw in Italy, um, there's a piece for ventilators, which is like a thousand dollars, and an Italian firm, I believe, it was an Italian firm, but they were able to make the piece. They're able to digital or to make it fabricated using 3D printing for about a dollar, so they're able to just make tons of them. Um, and that's one of the really amazing things about our world that that we live in is the fact that we do have this amazing technology and innovation. And uh, even with commerce now, I mean, commerce is it's not going to grind to a complete halt. Uh, which we would have seen even 10 or 20 years ago. Um, it, it'll still, it, it's going to be impaired, but it's still going to keep going. And the reason for that is because of all the techno technological uh, and innovation and the technolog technological advancements that we've made. Um, so it's not only entertainment, it's in a lot of other things as well. And our world is better off because of that. Yeah, I, I wonder if we're allowed to stop hating Jeff Bezos yet, the, <laughs> the founder and filthy rich uh, capitalist of, of creator of Amazon. On, I'm on not the, sure. The, I'm not sure people would be fed right now without Whole Foods and Amazon. On the other side of that, I am concerned uh, about small business and about you know your mom and pop businesses. Uh, I think what we're going to see out of this is we are going to see a, a massive consolidation in many sectors of the economy because the big businesses can weather this. Um, and the mom and pops can't. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's that that does concern me, and that's sad. And as as we know, what'll happen uh, when we see this money that's uh, the Fed is printing and so generously throwing out into the economy through Congress, uh, that'll go to the big companies and the big corporations and put mom and pop at even more of a disadvantage. Uh, so that's something that we're trying to do uh, through my office locally. Is is uh, you know we're still trying to highlight small business and local business and um, you know, encourage people as much as possible to support their local businesses. Yeah, yeah we've, been, we've been doing a lot more takeout food here in Washington, D.C., trying to help some of our favorite restaurants stay, stay afloat. There's a, there's a digital tip bar for my favorite bartender <laughs> who is out of work, and uh, I, I need him to be there uh, for me, when when the economy recovers, so so we've been, exactly. we've been pitching in there. There are, I think you're right. There is consolidation, and and all of those big corporations that sort of rigged this last um, 
how much was it? 2.2 trillion, and then another 4 trillion coming from the, the Federal Reserve. Um, I wasn't going to go here, but since I have you, uh, this seems like a good way to wrap this up. I got a question today on Facebook from, from one of our viewers from last week's show asking about monetary policy and the Federal Reserve and, and what's going to happen when the federal government keeps spending all of this money they don't have. I'm guessing you have a perspective on that. Again, it's very dangerous to predict or forecast what happens when it comes to economics. You were looking at one of those people that thought 2008 was it. Um, but I think 2008 is going to prove really be almost a blip on the radar compared to what we're going through now. Uh, currently, the uh, national debt's what about 23 trillion dollars. Um, well, I, I know as someone that, that deals with uh, governmental budgets, albeit on a much smaller level, how important debt service is. Uh, the federal government spends about 400 billion dollars a year on debt service. So, and then that's with uh, that's with interest rates, their average interest rate is about 2.15%, which is, of course, extremely low. So if we extrapolate that out and we're talking four to six trillion dollars added to the national debt through direct spending, um, we're going to see the, the, uh, the um, debt service is going to go up 100, maybe 200 billion dollars, which is going to have very detrimental impact on the budget going forward. Uh, right now, they're fighting off a deflationary spiral because people are out of work, people are scared, they're not spending. A deflationary spiral is the Keynesian economist's worst nightmare, okay? And they will do anything that they can to stop that, which is what the Fed is currently doing. Um, the, so what they're doing is they're, they're, they're gonna pump tons of money into the economy. Uh, some folks are saying that the, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is gonna double. Right now, it's at, already at a record, five trillion. It's gonna go to 10 trillion. Um, and the thing about that is, is that money comes out to the money center banks. You know, a lot of it has to do with money velocity and, and all those sort of things. But as the money goes out, uh, if it sits there, nothing really happens. But as it gets loaned out into the economy, as the, the velocity of money picks up, uh, inflation begins to happen. Now, what happened in 2008, 2009, afterwards, well, folks say, well, there wasn't any inflation. There was. It was in the stock market. It was also in capital flows out of the country. Okay, if you, if you look at, at, at those sort of things. Um, we, we did not see the massive price inflation a lot of people thought, a lot of us Austrian economists thought what might happen um, because it, it went to other places, it went to asset inflation. Um, so depending on what happens there, uh, you know, I, I think what could happen is we, we see this deflationary spiral once everything sort of smooths out however long it takes the economy to start picking up, consumer confidence gets better, people start borrowing money again, banks start lending. Well, now you have this, this huge amount of seed money that could cause tremendous price inflation. Will that happen? I, I don't know. Um, but certainly they're, they're putting the seeds out there for it now for a whipsaw from where we go to a highly deflationary environment to a highly inflationary environment. One, one, one thing's for certain. It would have been better perhaps to go into this crisis with the federal government not having $20 trillion in debt and the Federal Reserve not having trillions of toxic assets. I'm just saying. Yeah, well, and, and also um, when you look at, uh, and I don't like the term entitlements when you're talking about Social Security because, I mean, people paid into that system. Um, nevertheless, Social Security is not funded. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at it, it's actually underfunded to the tune of trillions and trillions of dollars. Uh, so there, there are some real fiscal issues that the federal government is going to face coming out of this. Yeah.
Okay, thank you, Mr. Mayor. I really appreciate your perspective on the ground. And my hope is that, that we in Washington, D.C., give you guys enough freedom to actually work from the bottom up to solve this problem. Well, thanks, Matt. Um, and I think the most important thing for everybody to remember um, is, is we're going to get through this. And uh, this is what I tell the folks here in Knox County. Um, we have to come together as a community, um, more so maybe than we ever have before, uh, because we're going to have a lot of folks that have been impacted by this um, by this virus, whether it's directly or indirectly. And we'll have people who have lost loved ones. We'll have people who have been financially wounded, who have been spiritually and emotionally wounded. Uh, so I, I think that in the end, um, if we can come together as a community and all our various communities across the country and uh, be there for each other and be a community, I think we will be stronger for it. And I don't think it's going to be easy, but we can do it. Well said. Thank, thank you, Glenn Jacobs. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.